Chapter Five of the Statement of Stella Maberly by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. I think that even those who have felt least sympathy with me hitherto will find some pity for me now in the first terrible shock of my discovery that Evelyn was dead. I refused to believe it at first, in spite of appearances. I tried every restorative, every test I could think of, and all was in vain until in my despair I felt something like anger with the form that lay there, so still and passive, with the lips parted in a half-smile that seemed a tender mockery of my efforts. She was dead, and I might rouse the house and send for doctors, but nothing would make any difference. They would only tell me what I knew already. I recognised at last how useless it was to seek any longer for signs of the life that had fled, and I stood there in a dazed stupor, repeating to myself over and over again, Evelyn is dead. She will never know now how bitterly I repent, how dearly I love her. I shall never hear her speak to me again. She is dead, quite dead, until the words lost their meaning. If only even now I could wake to find it all a ghastly dream. But no, I knew it was too hideously real, the horrible irony of having been so near happiness and missing it thus. The thought of all that hung upon Evelyn's life, the part she was to have taken in bringing Hugh Dallas and me together, and the impassable gulf her death had set between us, all this came upon me with crushing force, and I fell on my knees, writhing in speechless, tearless agony by the bed where she lay unheeding, and out in the garden the pitiless birds sang louder and merrier every moment. I knew I ought to take some action, call someone, not to leave the household any longer in ignorance of what had happened, but I couldn't stir. I, I would wait a little longer still. There might, oh, who knew there might be a miracle wrought, if I prayed, if I wrestled hard enough with heaven to give me back my dead. God had heard such prayers before. Would he be more cruel to me when my need was as great as, oh, nay, greater far than that of those others? Surely he would see that my punishment was heavier already than I could bear. And I prayed, unceasingly, frantically, seeking by passionate entreaties, arguments, promises, to move that far-off tribunal to set back its decrees, just this once more, and allow this one soul to return through the gates that had scarcely closed as yet. Was not all possible to an omnipotent and merciful God? Thus I entreated and implored, but there was no answering sign. God saw my misery and heeded it not. It was useless to appeal any longer, since he was either indifferent or powerless. And then in my reckless raving I besought whatever power there might be, good or evil, angel or devil, on earth or in hell, that heard me to come to my aid now in my desperate extremity, and make that which was dead alive. But hardly had the impious words left my lips than I was appalled at my blasphemy, and implored that my Creator would pardon me for even momentarily doubting his omnipotence, and show me of his infinite mercy and goodness, even now, little as I deserved it. And while I still knelt, 
the sun rose and shot a level ray of crimson gold into the room suffusing evelyn's pale pure face with the hue of life and health until as i looked the illusion was so powerful that i buried my face in the bedclothes lest i might be cheated into hope for i knew then as i had known all the time that i was asking the impossible the age of miracles was past the dead returned to us no more i must try to bear my load of grief and remorse with patience until heaven saw fit to let us meet again and all would be understood and forgiven but suddenly i became aware of a slight stir beneath the coverlet a sound like the faintest sigh i raised my head hardly daring to hope that my senses had not duped me afresh and then with a relief so acute and overpowering that it was almost agonising and a mental shock that numbed my brain for the moment i saw evelyn's breast heave and her eyelids quiver and her eyes light up with the life that a moment before seemed to have died out of them for ever i caught her slight unresisting form in my arms and kissed the sweet wondering face calling her by the maddest fondest names laughing and weeping beside myself with the unspeakable joy of finding her warm and living who but just now had lain there dead and cold she submitted to my caresses without returning them seeming but half awake a strange wonder still lingered in her eyes as though they had looked upon the secrets of the life beyond and could not forget them all at once her very smile was charged with mystery where am i she said dreamily how do i come to be here and who are you evelyn i cried don't you know me i'm stella stella maybelly Oh, say that you're beginning to remember that you forgive me for all i'd said and did last night last night she repeated vaguely tell me stella for i seem to have forgotten brokenly and incoherently i poured out my confession keeping back nothing exaggerating rather than extenuating all my harsh words and evil thoughts i told her of the chloral i accused myself of being her murderess in all but deed I described how I had read her letter, and come in to find her lying there, to all appearances dead. She covered her eyes with her slender hands for a minute or so, as if to reflect and remember, and then she looked at me, still with that questioning scrutiny. "'I do begin to recollect now,' she said slowly. Oh, "'What a fright you must have had, Stella. But what has become of the chloral?' oh i see you had the presence of mind enough to get rid of it as soon as you saw what had happened that was prudent the file was certainly gone as i noticed now for the first time evelyn i cried sorely hurt you can't really suppose i could think of any danger to myself then as if anything could matter but that i had lost you i could only pray and god heard me he has let you come back to me oh my dear my dear he has let you come back she let her hands lie passively in mine and lay smiling with a soft gleam under her half-shut eyelids he has let me come back she said how good of him how grateful you must be and what much greater care you will take of me for the future 
will you not, Stella? There was something in her tone which was not exactly flippancy or mockery, but rather a touch of delicate irony, which, however playful and affectionate, jarred on me at such a moment. Irony of any sort was so unlike Evelyn. But how could I give such a trifle more than a passing thought in the rapture I felt at having her back alive and well? I could only again protest my shame for having misjudged her, my willingness to be her devoted friend, her servant, her slave, anything she would permit me to be in future, and beg her for some assurance that I had not quite lost her confidence and affection, in spite of all my unworthiness. "'You must give me time, Stella,' she said languidly. "'I don't understand it at all yet.' There's a great deal that I have to get accustomed to. Everything seems strange, even this place, as if I had been away a long, long time. I want to be alone and think. I could readily understand that the effect of the opiate had not quite worn off as yet, and that she must have been shocked and bewildered too by my overstrung and hysterical confessions so I left her to recover full possession of her faculties in peace. It was still early, but I was too excited and happy to sleep. I had my bath, dressed, and went down to the garden, to taste the full sweetness of the contrast between my present bliss and my condition when I last paced those paths in miserable uncertainty and dread a few short hours ago. Standing there in the fresh morning air, watching the first spiral of smoke ascend from the old chimney-stacks into the golden-blue sky, and hearing the cheerful sounds of awakening life from the offices and stables, it was impossible to retain the idea of any supernatural element in Evelyn's recovery of animation. I could see now that no miracle had happened. The drug had thrown her into a sleep so profound that it had the appearance of death and my conscience-stricken imagination had led me to believe the worst. But whether I had cause or not for gratitude, I did feel deeply thankful to heaven when I thought of the anguish and desolation which this day had seemed so certain to bring, and which I had been spared. And soon even this was forgotten in the recollection of what Evelyn had told me of Hugh Dallas. I should see him so soon, this very afternoon perhaps, and she would have reassured him. He would understand at least that there was hope for him, if he still cared to persevere. And if he did care, as I knew he would, I should act the woman's delicious comedy of seeming gradually to soften towards the man she secretly adores, here, in this dear old garden world, through the golden hours that were coming to me. A new radiance was on the familiar landscape, Everything I saw around me had become strange and wondrous and beautiful. The ripple of light and shade over the distant cornfields, the long violet shadows cast by the trees on the dew-silvered pasture-land, the colour and fragrance of the flowers, the flitting of yellow butterflies about the lawn, every common thing, in short, filled me with a keenness of delight that was like an additional sense. This state of rapturous ecstasy made me lose all count of time, and I was startled to find that I had been roaming about for hours, and that the gong was sounding for breakfast. Neither Evelyn nor her aunt had come down as yet, and as I waited for them, 
I wondered how I had never before appreciated the charm of the long, low-ceilinged morning-room, with its panelled walls and stately old furniture. The sun had not as yet struck further in than the faded crimson of the window-cushions, though it shone in full glare upon the conservatory at the further end, where the masses of bloom and transparent green foliage made a vivid contrast to the cool, subdued light of the room itself. The very breakfast-table, with its dainty china and gleaming silver, heightened the luxurious sense of well-being and the delightfulness of mere existence, which made the world seem so good to live in that morning. And yet, when Evelyn appeared, as she did presently with Mrs. Maitland, I felt almost from the moment she entered, as if my exhilaration had received an unaccountable check. Why, I could not understand. She was looking brighter and fresher than she had done for weeks. She greeted me with a gaiety and good humour that seemed to ignore all that had happened. And yet I could not resist an uneasy fancy that in some way her attitude to me had changed, that my impulsive confession had killed for ever the guileless trust and affection she had given me before. After we had sat down to breakfast and the butler had left the room, she said, Aunt Lucy has been paying me the most extravagant compliments on my appearance, Stella. I hope you see an improvement in me, too. Well, you're looking wonderfully well, dear Evelyn, I said. Better than I could have hoped. Hoped? When? she said. Last night? Or early this morning? I couldn't answer. The tone in which she asked the question, rather than the question itself, sent a chill to my heart. I could not have believed that she would treat so lightly what had passed between us. Stella came into my room this morning, Aunt Lucy, and found me so sound asleep that she fancied I was never going to wake again, she explained. Indeed, my dear, you were only half awake when I came in to see you just now, said her aunt, for you didn't know me in the least. I assure you, Miss Maberly, I positively had to tell her who I was. Wasn't it stupid of me? said Evelyn, and I frightened poor Stella so that she said the wildest things. She was quite persuaded that she'd killed me. Why is more than I quite understand even now. What made you imagine yourself so guilty, Stella? I looked at her appealingly. Her eyes met mine with a malicious challenge in them, which I knew I could not avoid by silence. I told you, I said, in a voice I couldn't steady, I told you that I thought the chloral. I could not finish the sentence. The recollection of all the agony of those minutes overpowered me. Oh, the chloral. I remember now, she said. Aunt Lucy tells me she took it away last night, and it will be a great relief to me, Stella, if you will let it remain in her keeping. It is such a dangerous drug that I do trust you will have nothing to do with it in future. One so easily makes mistakes. I couldn't trust myself to reply. I knew too well that all these speeches, though worded so as to convey nothing of their real significance to any ear but mine, were so many deliberate taunts. Why did she take this cat-like pleasure in torturing me? She who had never before uttered a cruel word. Any other sign of estrangement I could have understood, but this was too utterly foreign to all my conceptions of her. Mrs. Maitland saw, I think, that this subject was distressing to me. 
and with her usual good nature turned it off by remarking how delighted she was to see that Evelyn had at last recovered her appetite. I had already noticed that Evelyn was eating more heartily than I ever remembered to have seen her, and with a daintily sensuous enjoyment which somehow made her seem more charming. "'I'm ravenous this morning,' she said. "'I feel as if I'd eaten nothing for ages. You must try not to feel horrified, both of you.' "'Oh, my dear,' replied her aunt, "'I'm sure we're both only too pleased to see such a change. "'I really think this country life has begun to do you good at last. "'You have certainly come down quite a different creature this morning.' "'A different creature,' she repeated with a gay little laugh. "'Is that your opinion of me, Stella? "'You're bound to put up with me at all events, are you not, whatever I am?' When breakfast was over, and she and I were in the room alone together, she wound her arm round me and drew me up to an old-fashioned mirror in a tortoise-shell frame that hung on one of the walls. "'Come and help me to make the acquaintance of my new self,' she said. "'I want to know whether you approve of me. Really, I think you ought to feel satisfied. I do.' As I stood there and saw our two faces reflected side by side, I thought that surely Evelyn had never looked so lovely before. Her cheeks had never worn so vivid a rose, her eyes had never shone with that starry radiance, her smile had never been so dazzling. And yet, even while I felt her arm pressing me closer to her, I could not prevent a shiver of apprehension, a growing distrust and dread, which I knew to be unreasonable. She noticed the pallor and trouble in my face, the uncontrollable shrinking under her embrace. "'Why, Stella,' she said, in a tone between amusement and concern, "'you're trembling. Is it possible that you can be afraid of me?' "'I don't know,' I faltered. "'I don't think I'm afraid. I don't want to be.' "'Up there, in that room, you promised to love me more devotedly than ever,' she said softly. "'Is this how you begin?' "'You won't let me,' I cried. "'You have not forgiven me. "'If you had, you would not delight in reminding me "'of what you know must give me pain, "'of what I would willingly forget. "'You don't look at me as if you loved me, "'and it frightens me, Evelyn. "'There is a change in you, and I see it.' "'She shrugged her shoulders. "'Naturally there's a change after what has happened,' she said. "'But think.' Would you rather that your beloved Evelyn was lying white and cold and silent forever upstairs at this moment than have me here by your side? What is done cannot be undone, and it will be wiser of you to accept me as I am. You can't believe that I am anything but unspeakably glad and grateful that you are spared to me, whether you love me or not, I cried passionately. "'Say at least, at least that you don't doubt that.' "'I do not doubt it,' she replied. "'You have too much reason to be both, my dear. "'Only I expect to be given proofs of your sincerity. "'That's all. "'Oh, there, don't distress yourself any more about it. "'I have no ill-feeling whatever towards you. "'Why should I?' "'She kissed me with a kind of careless, half-contemptuous clemency as she spoke, but I could not feel consoled or reassured. It was too plain that the sudden discovery of my baseness had for the time shaken her faith in friendship, 
and driven her into cynical disbelief in any disinterested affection. I'd tried her too far, and done harm that it would be long before I could entirely repair, if it ever could be entirely repaired. It was my punishment, and I must accept it, since I had deserved a far heavier penalty even than the forfeiture of Evelyn's confidence. I might have lost her. A little later we were in the garden, when Mrs. Maitland came out. "'I only wanted to know, dear Evelyn,' she said, before I saw the cook, "'whether it is at all likely that Mr. Dallas may dine with us this evening. Oh, that is, if he is coming over this afternoon?' There was an irrepressible curiosity in her eyes as she looked at Evelyn, which showed that her question was not wholly prompted by household considerations. "'Mr. Dallas,' said Evelyn, with apparent unconcern, "'is he coming over? Oh, very likely he may. You had better ask Stella, had you not?' "'Nonsense, my dear,' said Mrs. Maitland, with some irritation. "'It is a question for you and nobody else.' "'Really, I think it is time you took me a little more into your confidence, "'and I must have a little private talk with you on the subject. "'I'm sure Miss Maberley will excuse us.' "'She drew Evelyn away, and I heard no more, "'but I could see them walking up and down the paths in the fruit-garden, "'Evelyn bending her graceful head in demure attention, "'or occasionally stopping to strip off a bunch of currants as she passed, "'and Mrs Maitland talking earnestly and emphatically.' Presently Evelyn returned alone, and threw herself into a chair by my side. "'Have you told her?' I asked impulsively. "'I think my invaluable Aunt Lucy monopolised the conversation,' said Evelyn, smiling, more to herself than to me. "'She was most informing. Uh, have I told her what, Stella?' "'Oh, you know!' I exclaimed. Uh, "'And don't you see that Mrs Maitland believes that Hugh—' Mr. Dallas is in love with you. She made no secret of it, said Evelyn. And if he is, my dear, what then? Can you ask, after the letter you wrote me only last night? You cannot have forgotten. Absolutely. My mind is a perfect blank on the subject. I gather from you that you and I quarrelled last night rather seriously. Was it about this Hugh Dallas, by any chance? You only pretend to be ignorant to punish me. You must remember. All that happened before this morning, my dear Stella. I can remember nothing until I'm reminded. Show me this letter, and no doubt it will enlighten me. It was not altogether surprising that the draft should have left a cloud upon her memory. I went up to my room and got the letter, which I gave to her without a word, and knelt by her chair as she turned the pages and read to the end, with slightly raised brows and eyes, in whose brightness there was no touch of softening. "'Rather a sentimental effusion,' she said at length. "'Am I expected to be responsible for it?' "'Oh, for God's sake, don't sneer at it!' I exclaimed, on the verge of a flood of tears. "'It was written from the noblest and most generous impulse any woman could feel.' I know it's all different now. I've lost your respect. You despise me. But, oh, Evelyn, don't abandon me altogether. Don't take this away from me, too. You promised. You promised. You know I can't speak to him myself. And if you do not, he will go. And I shall die. 
oh need we be quite so tragic over this affair she said i've never said that i was unwilling to carry out the promise in this letter i have no animosity against you on the contrary i feel considerably indebted to you as you may understand and if this lover of yours is really so faint-hearted or stupid as to need any encouragement from me he shall have it what do you wish me to tell him <laughs> tell him what you will i said i'm below pride now tell him that i love him with all my heart as he loves me evelyn i broke off as a sudden terrible doubt struck me you you didn't write this to mock me you are sure he does love me is it true that he told you so with his own lips as true as that i wrote this letter she said which by the way is not worth preserving and she tore it up as she spoke leave it to me my dear if there's anything i can do to bring about a better understanding between you and this hugh dallas it shall be done i couldn't look into her candid eyes and doubt her any longer i wondered how i could ever have felt even a passing distrust i had disappointed her shaken her faith in me but hers was not the nature to allow that to affect her conduct my future was as safe in her gentle hands as before i ought to have known i said gratefully you are too sweet and generous not to forgive but you will tell him soon will you not you won't keep me or or him longer in suspense than you can help well isn't he coming this afternoon she said lightly i suppose i shall have an opportunity of seeing him then and in the meantime my dear you must contrive to control your impatience hugh dallas did come that afternoon to find us sitting on the lawn in the shade as on his first visit to tanstead i thought him paler and though we shook hands as if we had parted on the most ordinary and amicable terms he avoided looking at me preferring it seemed to read his answer in evelyn's face rather than mine but for this i was grateful for i had been afraid that my countenance would betray me only too clearly it was evident that he was struck at once by her marvellous recovery of health and animation i thought he gathered that it was of a good omen for him for he scarcely took his eyes from her face and his own brightened you look at me as if you'd never seen me before she said laughing i could almost believe some miracle had happened to you he replied i certainly never saw you looking so wonderfully well before i feel as if i had been given a fresh lease of life she said but if there has been anything miraculous about it it is stella you have to thank for it miss maybelly he cried and then he looked at me for the first time and i saw anxiety bewilderment i know not what conflict of hope and fear passing over his face before i turned my eyes away he said something to her in so low a tone that it escaped me but i gathered that she was playfully declining to enlighten him any further just then and shortly afterwards tea was brought out and mrs maitland joined us when he was obliged to wait for a more convenient moment i sat silent but very happy especially after i noted the eagerness with which he accepted evelyn's invitation to dine at tanstead that evening i knew that i should not have to be cruel to him or to myself very much longer 
I laughed inwardly when Mrs. Maitland, under the transparent pretext of consulting me on the arrangement of flowers at the table, drew me into the house. "'I thought we would leave them to themselves a little, my dear,' she confided to me, "'because this time I really think—this oh, wonderful change in her, you know, depend upon it she's been fretting and making herself ill all this time because she couldn't make up her mind whether she cared enough for him. And now her last doubts have disappeared, her health and spirits have come back immediately. Last night was evidently the crisis.' I humoured her with a secret enjoyment of the surprise that awaited the unsuspecting lady, and of the very different result that she was so innocently helping to further, but I was only too glad to leave Hugh in Evelyn's hands. An hour or so later I watched him from my window riding down the avenue on his way home to dress, and thought I detected a buoyant hopefulness in the air with which he sat his horse. He knew the truth now or as much of it as Evelyn had thought fit to tell him. He understood at last that he need not fear another repulse from me. Oh, how lovingly I lingered over dressing that evening, with a tender, unfamiliar delight in adorning myself for his eyes. I put on my prettiest gown. I felt a glad pride in the knowledge that I was looking even better than I could have hoped. I was ready. I went across to Evelyn's room and found her standing before the long mirror. I was positively startled as I realised how wondrously lovely she was in her pale, shimmering gown, her fair neck and shoulders set off by deep flounces of lace which fell over her breast and arms, one hand hovering like a white butterfly over her golden head as she gave the final touch to the ornament in her hair. I had never seen her look so bewitchingly beautiful. Even the maid who stood by was staring at her in a sort of fascination. When she had been sent out of the room, I went up to Evelyn and put my hands on her shoulders. "'Does he know?' I whispered. "'You have told him?' She laughed. "'I could hardly tell him you were dying of love for him, could I, Stella? But I said as much as I could for you, and I fancy he is beginning to suspect that he has been extraordinarily blind.' I should not be surprised if he found an opportunity of coming to a better understanding with you before long. Oh, how can I thank you? I shall owe it all to you. Oh, and I love him so much, Evelyn. If I could make you understand what it means to me. My dear, she said, I understand. You owe me nothing at all. And as those are probably the wheels of his dog-cart, I hear, perhaps you will leave off crushing my poor lace, and we'll go downstairs. I was hoping that there would be something, a glance, a pressure of the hand, by which Hugh Dallas would convey to me when we met that he was conscious that the cloud between us had lifted, though as I told myself the moment after, I might have guessed that delicacy would prevent him from seeming to take anything for granted until he had heard it from my own lips. It might have been my own fault, too, for I was oppressed then and throughout the dinner by the old constraint, which I was furious with myself for being unable to conquer. I was horribly nervous, and he seemed scarcely less embarrassed. Now and then I could see him glance at Evelyn with an air of appeal and almost reproach, as if he suspected that she had misled him by giving any encouragement. 
but I'm not sure that I didn't find, before the meal came to an end, that the artificial constraint between us had a subtle charm of its own, which I would not have lost just yet. So soon now, perhaps before the last sunset gleam had quite died out of the sky, all misunderstanding would be removed. There was a piquancy in keeping up this pretence of coldness until the last moment, a delicious flattery in the sight of the suspense and anxiety from which he so evidently suffered. And at last the moment came. Evelyn had proposed that we should go into the garden after dinner, and linking her arm in Mrs. Maitland's, she had contrived to draw her away to a distant part of the grounds, so as to give Hugh the opportunity she'd promised. He was not slow in availing himself of it. He came over to the corner of the lawn in which I was sitting, drew up a chair beside mine, and sat down. For some little time he was silent, and though I could scarcely see his face in the deepening shadow under the branches, I could tell that he was deeply moved. I felt no impatience for him to speak. It was enough that he was there, close by me. I lay back in my chair in dreamy content. The western sky was passing from saffron to citron green and deep luminous blue. The flower borders glowed dimly through the falling veil of dusk. The martins were flitting noisily in and out of their nests under the gables. A cricket chirped incessantly somewhere in the house, and the bats swooped and wheeled through the warm air, uttering tiny shrill cries. It all seemed a sort of peaceful prelude to the supreme hour at hand, the hour that was to bring me the full assurance of the love I had hungered for. And presently he spoke, in a low voice which trembled and faltered at times, as if even yet he could hardly believe in his good fortune. "'Tell me,' he began, "'is it true, what I have heard this afternoon, that you are no longer my enemy, that in spite of what happened yesterday afternoon, we're to be friends after all?' "'I never was your enemy, really,' I said. "'It was all a mistake. I misunderstood. I asked Evelyn to explain it to you.' "'What can I say to you? You have made me very happy.' If you knew what despair I was in last night, how little I thought that there was any hope of gaining your approval. Forget yesterday, I said softly. Forget what I have been to you before you knew. Only tell me that Evelyn has made you understand, that you really are the happier for it. I want to be quite, quite sure of that. And then he began to speak of Evelyn and gradually as he dwelt on her sweetness and fascination, a deadly suspicion stole over me that I was duping myself once more, that in some way Evelyn had played me false. For some time I tried to think that I must have heard wrongly. Nothing so hideous could be. I kept myself under control and drew him on until I knew the truth. I don't remember the exact form in which he conveyed it, he was very diplomatic. He did not say in so many words that his love for me had been a passing fancy, that he accepted his rejection as final, and was grateful to me for reading his heart more truly than he had known it himself. But that was what he made me understand, nevertheless. I had to hear how in that single afternoon Evelyn had beguiled and enslaved him utterly, how all his hopes now lay in winning her, 
and how he felt notwithstanding that there was some indefinable change in her attitude towards him which made him despair of touching her heart and i listened to all these rhapsodies of his which were not for me i listened and gave no sign of suffering though the solid earth seemed sinking away beneath my feet and the sky above the black tree-tops to open and shut in livid fire there was a loud ringing in my ears and i found myself gripping the arms of my chair with such force that the bamboo splinters pierced the palms of my hands and perhaps kept me from fainting which was my dread no i would not faint he should not have the satisfaction of seeing that I cared. It was all over. Whatever he had felt for me, he felt it no longer. Whether Evelyn had deliberately fooled and betrayed me or not, it could make no difference. She had won him from me all the same. My short, mad, beautiful dream was dead now, and nothing, nothing would bring it back. So I schooled myself to make such replies as were necessary. I spoke and even laughed once or twice, and my voice sounded quite naturally, or if there was a note of heartbreak at times, he was not likely to detect it. How should he when his thoughts were so far from me? I think I was glad when Mrs. Maitland came towards us. Evelyn asked me to fetch her a cloak, she said. Shall I bring you out yours too, Miss Maberly? Oh, thank you, no, I said. I'm quite happy and comfortable without it. "'And why should you go, when I dare say Mr. Dallas will take Evelyn her cloak, and spare you the trouble?' "'I'd no desire to keep him there any longer. I believe I wanted to torture myself by seeing how eagerly he would accept a pretext for rejoining Evelyn, and if so, I was gratified. "'How good you are to me,' he said in an undertone as he rose, and Mrs. Maitland sank into a chair he had left, and began to purr apologetically.' "'It was really getting so late, my dear,' she said. "'I felt it was time to do something. "'Dear Evelyn seems so strange to-night. "'This afternoon I was almost certain she had decided to take him, "'and now she's been positively neglecting him all this while. "'However, it's a comfort to see you have got over your dislike to him. "'You seem to be quite good friends now.' "'Oh, quite,' I said.' Oh, it was so clever and sweet of you to understand my little hint about the cloak and send him to her. I looked across the lawn and saw his indistinct form hastening to the spot where Evelyn's gown glimmered faintly through the gloom. He was only too glad to go, I said. <laughs> yes, poor fellow, he is more hopelessly in love than ever. It's Evelyn I can't feel certain about. She's been talking so lightly and capriciously about him, so unlike her usual self. Still, I hope and believe it will all end in the right way. And now she can feel that he has your approval, it must have a great influence on her. Don't you think so, my dear? So Mrs. Maitland flowed on in conjecture and comment, and I sat and answered automatically, with an icy ache at my heart. And yet even then... I had not lost faith in Evelyn. She could not have deliberately misled me. She would be horrified and indignant when she discovered the change in his feelings. She would remonstrate with him, do all in her power to check and cure his infatuation. Perhaps who knew he would come back to me in time? 
so i longed to tell her everything and to have the assurance that if i had lost all else her loyal and tender sympathy was still left later that evening after hugh dallas had started to drive home the opportunity came mrs maitland had gone upstairs leaving evelyn and myself in the drawing-room she was moving about the room restlessly taking up and replacing books and knick-knacks and singing little snatches of song under her breath with occasional side glances at me of curiosity or challenge until i could bear the suspense no longer oh, sit down i cried you know there's something we must talk over together so late she said and after such an exhausting evening i warn you stella that if it's anything very serious i shall in all probability fall asleep she let herself sink gracefully into the nearest couch with her hands lightly linked behind her neck and her eyes gleaming through their narrowed lids it is serious enough for me i said evelyn i have found out to-night that hugh doesn't love me any more it's all over oh after proposing and being rejected let me see only yesterday wasn't it it seems an unusually rapid recovery i'm afraid you must have put your refusal in such plain words that his vanity was too much for his passion i never meant to refuse him you know all that was a mistake it is very unfortunate but if he has chosen to take you at your word i scarcely see what is to be done you promised to make him understand that, that you haven't told him he understands that you have reconsidered your disapproval of him and are ready to look upon him as a friend and was that all you told him would you have had me tell him more when he was so obviously contented with less i left it to you to attempt to relight his burnt-out fires my dear and i regret to find that you do not appear to have been successful though you will do me the justice to admit that i gave you an excellent opportunity i didn't try i said he made me see that it was quite useless evelyn he told me that it is you he loves now that is very interesting though i am afraid it's not such a surprise to me as it evidently is to you but you won't let him how can i prevent it it's bad taste on his part no doubt but you have given him his liberty i didn't know what i was doing evelyn you know i never meant it and i love him i can't live without him oh give him back to me is it not just possible he may not wish to be handed over it's not too late even yet i pleaded you could make him come back if you would if you only would why should i he happens to be quite the best-looking and most attractive person i've met for a long while and if he pays me the compliment of falling in love with me i at all events don't intend to reward him with frowns you've made him fall in love with you i said violently you've set yourself to bewitch him to make him forget me i trusted you and you betrayed me oh yes i see that now she unlaced her hands and leant forward with her eyes wide open and fixed on me with malicious mockery 
are you quite the person to reproach anybody with treachery she asked what do you mean i stammered well merely that i think i remember hearing only this morning of a person who for reasons of her own allowed with full knowledge of the consequences her dearest friend to be given a drug that would probably prove fatal i shrank back under the gaze of those brilliant malignant eyes evelyn i cried as heaven is my judge i didn't know i did not think of the danger until it was too late huh? qui veut la fin veut les moyens she said if your conscience acquitted you why did you accuse yourself of the crime as you did this morning you cannot be cruel enough to use my own words against me like that i said trembling violently whatever i accuse myself of in the state of mind i was in then it went no further than a passing thought how could it be called a crime when i did nothing i'm not an authority on morals she said but the distinction between actually administering a poison and allowing it to be given by another when a word would have prevented it seemed to me rather fine drawn i'm afraid that morally speaking you must be considered a murderess my dear stella a very charming and interesting one i admit but still a murderess you know i'm not that why you're better and stronger today than you have ever been the chloral has done you no harm me she said smiling none whatever but that does not affect the main fact i threw myself at her feet sobbing evelyn i can't bear it i can't i can't what has changed you like this and made you hard and cynical when you were so forgiving and sweet only a few hours ago is it i who have done it all oh for pity's sake don't say those cruel terrible things to me not even if i have deserved them i won't reproach you any more i will own that you are not to blame if hugh has come to love you best i give him up i will be content if only i have you be a little kind to me evelyn don't taunt and torture me with the past try to forgive me tell me that i have not lost the dearest the only friend i had in the world be my own dear evelyn once more she thrust me away from her with a little gesture of petulant anger oh, get up stella she said why do you talk this nonsense to me what is the use of pretences between us are you really such a fool as to try to deceive yourself you know very well that i can never be your own dear evelyn as you call her now you know very well why oh she added with a sudden peal of pitiless laughter is it really possible that you have failed to grasp the situation yet is this ignorance of yours genuine let me look at your face and see she seized my wrist in her light cool grasp and attempted to draw me towards the lamplight let me go i cried cowering with a sense that some nameless horror was before me don't look at me don't make me look at you i'm afraid i'm so afraid you fool she said angrily you've nothing to fear from me 
"'I'm not your victim, the innocent, trustful girl whom you allowed to be drugged to death. You know what you found when you went in this morning.' "'It seemed to be death,' I said wildly, "'but it was not. It couldn't have been. And I prayed to God, and he heard me.' "'God,' she answered contemptuously, "'God does not hear such prayers as yours.' "'He did hear mine. He gave you back to me,' I insisted. "'If not, how should you be here?' "'Look at me,' she said. "'Look me in the face, and then you'll understand.' I forced myself to lift my reluctant eyes to the lovely, scornful face that was looking down upon me. And then, God help me, I understood at last, and shrieked in an agony of despair and horror. For in that awful moment I knew that it was not Evelyn's stainless soul that was gazing at me now through her eyes, but some evil mocking spirit that my rash and blasphemous prayer had called to animate the form she had left. And then the room seemed to grow dark suddenly, and with a loud rush and roar in my ears, and the hope that this might be death that was mercifully snatching me from those soft, cruel hands that held me so fast, I became insensible. End of chapter 5